can have a seat. Good morning. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew Peck. I'm the lead pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, we will be in 1 Kings today in chapter 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some over there. You can feel free to grab one. I'll pray for us and we'll go ahead and dig in. Jesus, the journey is too great for us. The ground is too dry for us. The walk is too far for us. And our lives in You are too hard for us, but they are not too hard for You. You are the King. May we walk in the reality that You don't expect for us to go this alone. You expect for us to depend on You. May we walk in the reality that we are not to save ourselves, but You are the One who saves us. That we're not the ones trying to figure it out. We're the ones trying to learn and listen from You. That God, You're the One that moves. That this is Your truth and Your Word. And Your empowering Spirit with us. So we ask Your presence uh, with us now, God, and just pray that whatever's just of me would be forgotten, but whatever is of You, God, would be remembered. Jesus, we pray these things for Your glory and for our joy. And in Your name, Jesus Christ, Amen. Okay, we'll be in uh, starting verse 40 in 1 Kings 18. Um, it's like really, like everyone sat over there today. I didn't get the memo. Uh, anyways, welcome. Uh, so we're in, uh, we're in the Old Testament. Why is the Old Testament important? Well, for starters, there are 929 chapters in the Old Testament and uh, 260 chapters in the New Testament. That's a lot. Uh, as evangelical Christians, sometimes it's hard for us because we don't actually know what to do to, with the Old Testament. We don't know how to navigate it. But the reality is that it, uh, we are people who believe that the Bible is one story. Uh, that God made everything good. That human beings broke it. That Jesus Christ has come to fix it. And ultimately, uh, His people will be with Him, forgiven through His cross, with Him forever in the kingdom when it comes. Uh, and, and so much of that story is being told through the Old Testament. And there's weird stuff in there that as people in 2013, we're not always sure what to do with. Uh, but as Christians, we go to there because this thing is breathed out by God, Paul will tell us in 2 Timothy. And this is God's Word. And there's so much to learn about who God is in this in particular part of the text. And today we're going to come and we're going to see that, that an angel sent by God is going to say something really, 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 really important to Elijah. And he simply tells him, the journey is too great for you. And this thing that he tells them, the journey is too great for you, is actually antithetical to the way that we think and imagine and understand our story uh, as Westerners uh, and as pragmatic people. And it's antithetical to the story that we're told in school and maybe even the story we tell our kids uh, or even the stories that kind of we understand as our nar spiritual narrative identity as a nation. Uh, classic quote that everybody thinks comes from the Bible uh, but doesn't come from Ben Franklin, God helps those who help themselves, not in the Bible. Just Ben Franklin, who's not a Christian, right? Uh, the story that you can put, you can do anything that you put your mind to, right? We're told that again and again, even though you're five foot five and you want to play in the NBA. And everyone says, if you just put your mind to it, and then we make a movie about the one guy who is five foot five and gets in the NBA. And, and the reality is, we're honestly just told this story again and again and again as pragmatic Westerners that you need to learn how to try harder and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And as Christians, we actually are told a different story. And that's that we actually come to God with empty hands. And God is happy to fill them. 
we're actually told the story that, that it's not our own effort that's ever enough, but that it's Jesus Christ and what He's done that's enough. And, and yeah, we want to have stick to and we want to have character, but we want to learn to depend. And, and so often we come to, the, to, the, to our walk in Jesus with our Western pragmatic lens and say, I want to be holy, so how do I try harder to be holy? And what are the things I need to do to climb the corporate ladder of holy or the corporate ladder of church uh, to be better or stronger or faster? And, and we come to the kingdom of God and we come to King Jesus with this Western pragmatic lens when in fact this society that we live in, we actually need to learn to come to this pragmatic Western society with kingdom lenses to know how to live a life that Jesus is enough. And I think we're going to see that today here in First Kings. So starting in verse 40. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets. Okay, so here's where we're at. Uh, there's just been a sacrifice off. If you were with us last week, uh, the prophets of Baal built a sacrifice, uh, an altar and put a sacrifice on it. And Elijah built an altar and put a sacrifice on it. And they both prayed. And God brought fire down on Elijah's sacrifice. And it was just clear and plain and simple that the God of the Bible is God. And all the people said, Yahweh is God. The proper name of God. God is God. God is God. And here we find ourselves on the other end that they kind of seem to actually forget that really, really super quickly, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and here we go. The, uh, the, the sacrifice office happened. Verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Uh, this is one of those texts that can be very hard for us uh, as Westerners in 2013 because we don't quite know what to do with it. Uh, we don't know how to think of this. And a lot of that is because we don't really actually spend that much time in the Old Testament so we don't have a framework for even what to deal with this, how to deal with this. Uh, we miss the fact uh, that at this point in time, that God is the king of Israel. And yeah, there's a human king, but he's really God's representative. And Ahab is God's representative at this point in time. He's doing a really, really bad job of it. Uh, and that Israel is God's nation. And there are times when God uses Israel uh, and the, the actual nation he's in charge of uh, to judge sinful and wicked people, such as the prophets of Baal, who are nasty, wicked, nasty people. And we have a couple big problems with this as we try and understand it. Uh, and one is that I think uh, sitting here 2,000 years after Jesus and kind of 1,500 years, 1,400 years after what we'd call Christendom, the idea where everybody in the West is a Christian uh, and everybody's, uh, every nation, and this is of course faded, but until very recently, you know, everybody's, everybody in the West, uh, Jesus is their God, and so that every time they have a war that God must be on their side which kind of causes a problem when you get to things like the Civil War and you read these journals from these guys and everybody thinks that God's on their side uh, and yet you have this huge war. Uh, God's not on everybody's side in that. And we even live in a time and a place where people kind of tend to do something really foolish. And we try and take our own country and say, we're God's country. We're a theocracy. God is our king. Jesus is our king. This is a Christian country. And therefore, the things we do must be holy, right, and good. And even tragically, uh, when a, a tragic world event, there always happens to be that one guy that they put a microphone in front of who begins trying to interpret things that happen in a broken world in light of God's judgment on people and, and start saying, well, that thing happened because this country has stopped doing X, Y, and Z, and that's why God did that to us. There you go. And they try and interpret it through a theocracy lens. And so it gets weird for us when we get to the Old Testament when that's actually happening because as people sitting here, we don't actually get to do that. 
We don't get to interpret those things and say, oh, that must be God's judgment on that person because God did that. Jesus has this time where they say, hey, why is this guy, why is this guy blind? Is it his parents' sin or his sin? And Jesus says, it's neither of their sins. It was so the glory of God would be revealed and he gives them his sight back. We don't know what God is doing in the world always. And not only that, but even in the Old Testament, we see that he even uses other nations. He uses the evil of other nations for his purposes. Whatever evil is working out, God works out for good. Uh, and the other thing is we just plain and simple don't really like the idea of judgment in 2013. We're not really big fans of saying that somebody else is doing something they shouldn't be doing. We're not really big fans of saying that is wrong. It's not right for you to do that. Until, I mean, there's times when it gets like, elevated to the point where our, our moral conscience just can't stand for it. But generally speaking, we don't like the idea of judgment, and we don't really like the idea of a judgmental God. And, and we just want to say, you know, God is love, which is half the story. Because God is love, and God is holy. We worship a God who will not sweep evil under the rug and will deal with it. But not only that, we worship the God, Jesus, who saw the wickedness of humanity and enters into human history and lives how we're actually supposed to live and dies in our place so that everyone who would take refuge in the cross would be forgiven for their sins and their wrongdoing and their iniquities because you and I have sinned. And Jesus Christ came to deal with it. And we miss the fact that Jesus, in his, first incar- in his incarnation, comes and says, I haven't come to judge the world, I've come to save it, because he came to offer refuge for all of us. But the reality is he is going to return, and he is going to judge the wicked, and he is going to judge evil, and he is going to come and clear his name. The only innocent man who ever lived, we said was a liar, or we've said is a lunatic, or we've said isn't God. We've said God's not God. That one man, the God, God, the one God-man, Christ Jesus, is going to return, and he is going to clear his name, but he did so by offering a way for us all out. Verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. So what's our scene? Where are we at? There hasn't been rain in the land for three and one half years. And it's not raining yet. For there's the sound of rushing rain, because it's coming. So Ahab, now hear what Ahab did. So Ahab was there. And all the people around, and they have the two sacrifices, and the prophets of Baal who are kind of on Ahab's side, and Elijah who's standing by himself. Fire comes down from heaven, lights the sacrifice on fire. Ahab looks and says, that's very impressive. And then he just goes back on with his life as it was. And we can do this as Christians. We can see God move in huge and mighty and drastic ways, and then we just sort of move on with our life as it was. Um, We see God heal or do miraculous things, and at some point in time, we just kind of get back up and eat our cereal and go on with our day, right? We forget really quickly, and and we're going to see a lot about forgetting today. He keeps going. So Ahab goes off eating eating and drinking. He's eating his cornflakes or whatever, Uh, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. Um, so geographically where Israel is at, the sea the, is where usually the rain comes out of, which is in the west. Go have a look. And he went up and he looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go up again seven times. So he goes up and he comes down seven times. Go look, is there rain? No. Go look, is there rain? No. I won't do it seven times. But he does this seven times. Go up, look. Go up, look. Go up, look. 
God said it's going to rain. Elijah is taking it to the bank. It's not raining yet? Go up and look. Not raining yet? That's almost seven times. He takes the promises of God to the bank. When God said so, it is so. God cannot lie. If God says it will be, it will be. If it is not, it wasn't God. Okay? When Jesus, this is really important. I mean, honestly, if there's anything else that's really important, this is what you need to know. When Jesus says yes, the answer is never no. When Jesus says yes, the answer is never no. And Elijah takes this reality to the bank. God said it's time for rain. Keep looking. Keep looking. Keep looking. And and honestly, I think one of the things that we do so often is we forget. Every time, every time, every time I make a sports reference, I'm always, always, always referencing Tommy Nelson because I don't know anything about sports except for baseball. And Tommy Nelson's a cranky guy in Texas, but he makes amazing sports metaphors. And one of the things that Tommy said is that as Christians, uh, we have this problem. It's a basketball problem. It's a basketball problem? Maybe. Um, Basketball games are never lost because people can't make three-point shots. Basketballs are, basketball games are lost because you can't dribble. Uh, basketballs are game lost because dudes don't have the basics down. And so often I think where we get shipwrecked in our faith is we miss the very basic reality that when Jesus says yes, the answer is never no. Uh, we do not stand on the promises of God. What do I mean by that? We're quick to forget, right? Because this is true, right? Like the reason... Uh, uh, you're not working it out with your kids uh, is not because you cannot explain to me the difference between superlapsarianism and sublapsarianism. And don't even worry about Wikipediaing it, okay? It doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter, right? The reason why you can't focus on the things that Jesus wants you to focus on is, you, is not because you don't know how to parse a Greek verb. It's not because you haven't read Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, which is great. Uh, it's, it's not because you haven't been able to figure it out. It's because you've forgotten what's true of you in Christ. Uh, if you go with me, just real quick. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. This is true. This is the truth of this church if you are in Christ. If Jesus is yours, this is true for you. Verse 3. Chapter 1. Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. You had nothing to do with it. It was all His love and grace and mercy on your life that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The thing that makes you holy, blameless, and right with God is Christ's plan before the foundations of the earth, not whether or not you had a a quiet time this morning. Because this is actually the fuel that you get in in the book. right? Not, Not that you're trying to earn it from God, but this reality is what's going to inspire you to hear from God's voice through His Word. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Do you know that? That you're His kid? Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, He's working out your life. He's working out the good and He's working out the bad and His hand is on it to the praise of His glorious grace which with, uh, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That's Jesus, capital B. In Him we have redemption through His blood. And forgiveness of our trespasses. 
You are a forgiven, blood-bought, sinner, saint. That is who you are if you are in Christ because of the cross. And how often do we walk away from this and forget this reality? In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be able to the, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you, were, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is Christianity 101. This is, this is the intro to Ephesians. How often do we just forget that we're God's kids? That all of our sins are forgiven? That the Holy Spirit is present with us as we're trying to work it out? That we can go to Him Psalm 22 links directly the idea of trust and crying out to God. That that if you're someone who says, God, I need your help, you're exhibiting that you are someone who trusts God. And how how far on the chain of events do we go to, Jesus, I I don't think I can do it. My hands are empty and I need your help. I'm a created creature. You are God. You love me. I'm your kid. As your kid, I'm asking you to be with me now. Uh, even in the times where it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that he just like erases whatever's going on in your life, but that he's present with you in the midst of the junk and in the garbage and in the struggle. Right there with you. Even when we try and deal with sin, it's like step 10. It's like, well, I have to, I have to pull this mechanism and do this thing and exert this will and try harder. Step Step again, try harder, do this. Rarely do we say, Jesus, I can't do it. I need your help. That's exactly what he wants us to do. It's exactly what he wants us to do. The journey is too great for you. If you'd go with me again on the things we forget, if you'd go with me to to, uh, Romans chapter 8. Why are we in Romans chapter 8? We just preached through Romans chapter 8, right? Last fall. So if you're with us last fall, we preached through this. And I know for myself, as I was working through this chapter day in and day out, the mercies of God were new for me every morning. And yet when I come back to, to uh, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I need the reminder, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We do wrong, and Jesus dealt with it. We've done wrong, and he's dealt with it. His forgiveness and his mercy is mammoth and huge. Huge. We preached through that in fall, and when I read it this morning, I'm like, I needed that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only that, but in 31 it says this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. Right now, as we speak, Jesus Christ at the throne, going to God the Father for Anchor Church in Seattle, Washington in 2013. As we speak, right now, the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, goes to God the Father for us. Right now. I know that that's not the air I breathe. I know that that's, that's not the heartbeat of my life all the time. Because just like you, you and I, we don't take it to the bank all the time. Back in 1 Kings, Jesus said yes. King Jesus said yes. There's going to be rain. And so he sends him up. Go again seven times. And seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. So he's standing on a mountain and a cloud looks about that big from the mountain. Cloud hand. Yep, that's about it. Little teeny tiny cloud. And now it doesn't explicitly say this, but I think this very possibly might be the first rain cloud they've seen in three and a half years. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode, oh, pardon me, and, and he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. Little cloud, Ahab, suit up, get to town, because uh, you're not going to make it if you don't go now. Little cloud, size, of, they're trying to make sure you know this. Just a little black rain cloud. He says, you, you got to go, because you won't make it if you don't. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife, all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. So Jezebel is... Uh, Ahab's wife, uh, she is Phoenician. Uh, she is probably one of the instrumental players in importing uh, the worship of this pretend God into God's people, is quite possibly trying to militantly move out the worship of the God of the Bible from Israel. Uh, and she really, really likes the, the prophets we saw last week. Talk, it talks about these 450 prophets who we had the sacrifice off with, ate at her table. They're her buddies. And Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, this is a creepy day when you get this one. Um, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. I am going to get you, and I'm going to get you good. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Okay, so we're talking a very short order from the time that fire from God, came down and lit the altar on fire. We're talking, you know, a very, very short time from the time that he's sitting there saying, it's going to rain. God said, it's going to rain. It's going to rain. And one message from Jezebel, and he wilts. He finds that opposition in his life. And all of a sudden, this thing that everyone looked at, you know, oh, that is, that is a ministry accomplishment right there. You are... 
you know, that is the one. That one, you put that one on your resume. Fire came down from heaven. Now, of course, it was God who did it. It doesn't go on his resume. It goes on God's. Um, but he hears this thing. The, the opposition comes, and he just wilts under the pressure. Things get hard, and all of a sudden, he forgets everything that we were just talking about. Right? And this can happen. You, you wake up. You get in Philippians 2. You read it. Yeah, uh, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can do it, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether I'm, I'm rich or I'm poor today, I'm in. You go to work and you get laid off and you wilt. And I'm not saying it's not a time for people not to come around you and it's not a time uh, uh, to, to, to really seek God in His face, but, but we're, we're, we're these people who so quickly can switch and we can just feel good and I read my Bible and I'm in and I'm on it. I'm on the promises and this thing happens we didn't expect and all of a sudden we're like, where are you, God? Where'd you go? You were here this morning. We don't even remember this morning. We don't even remember this morning and that's where he's at. This is bad news. Jezebel wants to kill him and she's scary. Ahab's scary. She's scary. All these guys who worship Baal are scary. It's a scary scene and he's afraid. You probably would be too. So he leaves the servant at Bathsheba. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. Um, I was relieved. We're talking about rain and trees and finally there's something I can get my uh, mind around in the ancient Near East. Rain and trees. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Oh, I read that. Uh, and he asked that he might die. Coming off this huge accomplishment, huge deal, he sits down and he wants to die. It's over. I can't do it. it it's too much. It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life for I am no better than my fathers. This is idiomatic. Fathers always means ancestors. His ancestors are presumably dead. He's as good as dead. Let's just get it over with. I don't want to find my hand, myself in the hands of Jezebel or her troops. Just, just take care of it. I don't want to do it. He's, he's miserable. He's alone. He feels defeated. He feels like he can't do it. He lay down and slept under the broom tree. You know you've given up at this point in time. Right. When there's nothing left to do, so I'm just going to go to bed. There's nothing that like, compares to the feeling of defeat when you're like, that's it. I'm just taking a nap. I'm done. It's over. The only thing left to do is sleep. So he cuddles up and he takes a nap. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold... There was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. He's eating, he's drinking, God is taking care of him. Uh, I think one of the two of the best things you can do as worshipful acts, acknowledging that Jesus is the king of the universe, you can eat and you can sleep. Um, we live in this sort of, you know, uh, hopped up uh, fluorescent light world. We live in a world where we have these grocery stores that are open for 24 hours everywhere, everything. Not just the grocery store, everything else. 
And if you're too far from a 24-hour whatever, uh, you can have Amazon bring it to your house tomorrow because you're up at 3 in the morning and you need them to bring you a bag of carrots, I guess. Right? Because that's what you need from your telephone. We live in a society where people are working more and sleeping less. Uh, you know, there used to be the old adage, what do you do with the third eight? You work eight hours, you sleep eight hours, and there's a third eight. The third eight is gone because you're answering emails with the third eight on your telephone, right? We, we live in a world where we're moving constantly, and something really important for you to do is occasionally do this thing called sleep. We used to do it in the old days, where you lay down, and as you go to bed, you lay on your bed, and you think to yourself, or to God, really, Take a minute as you lay down and just realize the way this bed is holding me up is the way that Jesus has been holding me up all day and the way that Jesus will hold me up all day tomorrow because he holds up the universe by the word of his power. And as I nod off to sleep, I'm going to keep breathing. And, and my, my blood's going to continue to pump through my veins because Jesus is the king of everything. And as I sleep instead of stay up till 3 in the morning answering emails, I acknowledge that God doesn't need me to rule the world. God doesn't need me to keep the world going, but I sure as heck need him to keep everything going. We're not very good at that in 2013. We're not very good at acknowledging the fact that Jesus is the king of everything and everything's going to be just fine while you sleep for three or four hours at night. It's supposed to be eight, by the way. And here's our phrase, right? Here's our phrase. And the angel of the Lord came a second time. And he touched him and said, Rise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, uh, the mount of God. Another name for Horeb is Sinai. Uh, where the Ten Commandments are received, and we're going to look at the sort of second Moses thing next week. Uh, but our phrase here that we really want to focus on is this. Oh, and by the way, the food that he eats makes it to where he can walk to Sinai, which is about 40 days' walk away. Uh, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. This, this little phrase is at the core of the Gospel. I guarantee you, whatever God has called you to in life if it is from God, then it is too great for you. If he's called you into teaching or preaching or discipleship or speaking the truth of God, which makes dead people live, spiritually dead people become spiritually alive, or brings nourishment or healing to people's souls, is that something you can do? Or is that something he does? He sure as heck does it through you, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But honestly, if you think that I'm going to go on this journey and I'm going to fix some people or I'm going to start preaching or I'm going to plant a church or I'm going to pastor some people or I'm going to lead a community group because I am awesome and it's going to be awesome and everyone's going to think I'm awesome and they're going to throw me a great parade about how awesome I am for bringing spiritual life into people's lives. I'm sorry, that journey is too great for you. It's not too great for the Holy Spirit. It's not too great for Jesus, but it is too great for you. Uh, the very reality that we live lives alienated from God is evidence that, that the stuff of our life is too great for us. He had to come down for us. We cannot go up to get Him. But we don't believe this. We don't believe this. 
We often believe that we can break down our spiritual walk into manageable chunks that can fit on my iCal and on my telephone and I'm going to get the the word of the day emailed into my inbox and I'll read it at 6.55 because I set the alarm and I'll do it and I've managed it and I've made time to lead a community group and I'm going to disciple these people and I'm going to do this and I've managed it and it's there and we have a God of order and order is good. But if that's going to be an altar that's going to get lit on fire by God... The Holy Spirit has to be there. There's a lot you can do without Jesus. You can't do Jesus stuff without Jesus. When we don't believe this, when we don't believe that the journey is too great for us, it's hard to us to go to God with empty hands and say, I don't have anything. What do you got? Right? We do weird stuff. When you don't think the journey is too great for you, you probably don't think it's actually too great for other people. You look at somebody else's iCal thing and their quiet time, and you're like, that guy can... That guy can read all these books, and that guy can do this thing, and that guy can read his Bible, or that guy can do this. Why can't I do that? They seem to be doing it just fine in their own strength, right? Uh, we, we begin to compare and do weird stuff, right? We begin to compare the dark night of our soul to somebody else's Sunday best. Uh, we, we begin to compare what's going on uh, in somebody else's manicured lawn with whatever's happening in our living room. We, we begin to look at the external thing that's happening in their life and compare it to our life and say, well, geez, if that's the way uh, that guy can parent his kids at the grocery store, my life must be a mess. Because he's got it all figured out. Because we don't think the journey's too great for him. We don't think the journey's too great for us. We think we just got to try harder. we compare. Um, I think this is, this is how it works out if you actually think that the journey is not too great for you. right? We, we set our manageable, spiritual, personal, uh, financial task list, and we just begin working our way up the ladder or climbing the mountain. Yeah, I can do that. I, I got a book. We, we begin to look for only prudential wisdom. I've got a book that says how I can turn my rental house my one studio bedroom into a mansion, and if I just got to follow these 10 steps, I can do that. That is great. Uh, I can, yeah, I, 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 can, I can read the whole Bible in 90 days by this step, and I just got to read it this way and use their method. And I'm not even opposed to methods and things. I'm just saying if you, if you reduce it to something you can accomplish, that's probably not the fire of God moving. And if you tell God your whole life, you know what, God, I've got this whole thing, this whole spiritual growth thing, I've got this whole financial thing, I've got this whole family thing, I've got this whole parenting thing, it's cool, I'll just do it on my own. We run into a lot of trouble. But rarely do I actually meet someone who's as pharisaical and proud to actually think they can actually do it all on their own. They'll usually tell you about it, by the way, if they are that person. Uh, We want to have humility and not think that we can do it all. But I think the bigger problem is that we functionally believe this. Okay? So I'm not saying you're a Pharisee. I'm just saying you live like one. (laughs) By that I mean, I'll unpack that. By that I mean, you might even know, if I think I can do it on my own, then that probably isn't Jesus there. And you think, yeah, I don't want 10 steps to a better life. I just want Jesus, and I want him to be enough, and I want him to bring me the better life. No, I don't want the Jesus' life coach. I want Jesus' God. But then we begin to functionally live like it's all on our shoulders and it's all our responsibility. And we always fail at that, right? So we would say, yeah, I want to come to the Scriptures because I want to hear the voice of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But my default mode at 6 a.m. 
is arm wrestling the Bible and checking off my reading plan, and I did it so it's done for the day. Thank you. And that lasts for three weeks, and then you quit because that's hard. So you don't live constantly. You have sprinting. I think most of us have pharisaical sprinting, perhaps, where you try and do it in your own strength, and it doesn't work, and what that ultimately leads to is apathy. I think we end up there more often than anything. If you think it's done in your strength and your ability and you can't do it, you quit. Take a nap. But there's way better news than that. Because here's the deal. The reality is, the journey is too great for you. If you breathe that in and out, this is the best news that I think you will hear. The journey is, in fact, too great for you. It is, in fact, too hard for you. You want a Christian marriage? You want Christian kids? You want to have a healthy friend group? You want to live on God's mission? You want to tell your barista about Jesus? You want to tell the guy in the elevator about Jesus? You want to love your neighbors? You want to serve your neighbors? That is too hard for you. So this is where you either freak out or breathe deep, a deep sigh of relief. That's up to you. Because here's the deal. In and of ourselves, we cannot love God. But God has loved us first. And in of ourselves, we can't live a life without sin. And so Jesus Christ enters into human history and lives the life I was supposed to live, dies the death I deserve, and we do a trade. My, uh, my fallen, sinful, broken life for His holy righteousness so that the God of the universe looks at me and looks at you and says, this is my son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. He looks at you, He looks at you, and when you jack everything up, loves you. Paid for. Forgiven. You did fall short. But He doesn't even look at that. Important, important reality. It's important to have this conversation with your kids, by the way. Where you talk about how far your sin, their sin is from them because of the cross. How far is that sin when you fell short because the journey is too great for you? East is from the west. So, how far is that way? This is how you have the conversation, by the way. How far is that way from that way. He went into quantum mechanics? Far. Infinitely far. Your sin from you is that far through the blood of Jesus Christ. You're loved. You're forgiven. You're His. You're not holding on to Him. He's holding on to you. Yeah, hold on. Hold on. But ultimately, when your grip slips, his doesn't. Not only that, but we so often live, I think this is why Paul says it in Galatians chapter 3, that you who begin in the spirit are going to finish in the flesh. So most of us, I mean even this, this thing that where, where uh, uh, Elijah is so quick to forget, right? This is weird. I'll, I'll just share it. I don't care. You can think it's weird. So just watch the last. I don't use cultural references, so I can do this, right? I don't do these. So here we go. Except for ones from the 80s, which don't work for anybody. But the Karate Kid's still good, and so is Home Alone, right? <laughs> the last episode of The Office just aired. Nine years of a show. And I realized, the fr- I remember the first time watching the first episode of that show, I was not a Christian. I remember, watch- I remember where I was, whose apartment I was at, not a Christian. And in that time... 
uh, you know, got saved, met my wonderful wife, had kids, grown in the gospel, have the pleasure of pastoring along with the other men who pastor this church. A lot has changed in nine years. And at the same time, anyone who has kids will tell you things like a five-year-old going from being a baby to being five happens very quickly. There is no doubt in my mind that moment when I met Jesus in my parents' living room reading an orange Gideon Bible in Matthew 5 was a miracle. We all have that story. If you didn't grow up in the church especially, I think if you grew up in the church, that's a gift, by the way. But many of us people are like, you're a Christian? For real? I know, it's a miracle. Isn't it awesome? I can trust God in that moment, and then yet when I'm just trying to figure out how to read my Bible in a regular way, I start white-knuckling it and working it out. When I'm trying to figure out how, how to love my wife or love my kids in the gospel, all of a sudden I'm making plans. Plans are good as long as they're uh, under the reality that it's a miracle of God for you to love God and love others. And so often when we say, I need to love God and love others, we start making a plan. You know where it starts when you want to love God and loving others? is loving God and understanding what He's done to you, remembering the truth, coming back to that miracle of your life in Christ, your sonship or your daughtership in the Gospel of Jesus, and remember who He is. And it turns out when you remember how much He's forgiven you, and how much He loves you, and how much He's moved, and how much He's given you this gift gift to glorify Him by enjoying Him, oh man, all of a sudden is it easier to love other people. Did you begin in the Spirit? Are you going to finish this thing in the flesh? Some ten-point book or something? It's in the Gospel. It's in Jesus. And not only that, the Spirit has come and indwelt us. We forget this. He's taken up geographical residence inside of us. Uh, As Christians, we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, and the Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers our very life and walk. Yeah, you can't do it. He's asking you to do things that are greater and mightier than you are capable of so that when they happen, it is clear to the world that you've died to yourself and you've lived to Christ and the Holy Spirit's moving in your life. Just like the altar last week. God wants to glorify Himself through you by doing things that are impossible. The world might not always see that they're impossible, but He's doing impossible things through you all the time. You have to have spiritual eyes to see the impossible things he's doing, like someone who was once dead telling other dead people, Jesus Christ lives, Jesus Christ forgives, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's a miracle. And the Holy Spirit's with you and empowering you, and you're never alone. And not only that, but look around, you have a people to walk with you. This is the church. We're here together. These people are here to help you. It's not awkward if you look around, but you don't have to, right? We are here to help each other. This is what it is to be a church, is to take responsibility for each other, right? You're taking responsibility for this community. This community is taking responsibility for you. That is a gift that we're here to walk with each other so that each other might see Jesus. God loves us first. Jesus did it all. The Holy Spirit empowers, and there's this this people around us together. And when we believe this, when we believe we come to Jesus with empty hands and He's the one that fulfills us and He's the one that sustains us and it's everything He's done and it's nothing that we do. This runs out worldliness in our lives. Uh, This runs out our effort as the source of our happiness or our ability to please God. 
Uh, it runs out our bad theology that says that God loves, you know, we do this to different people. It's easy like for us not to be like, well, God loves rich people, right? But, but oftentimes as we're comparing, oh, God loves that guy more because God's doing X, Y, or Z more in his life. How come? Who said? That, that's not the message of the gospel. It's not worldliness, it's grace. Everything I have, everything you have is a gift from God. But we begin to rank it and we get weird and we compare and we do all these weird things and it runs out everything that says that my life should be easy because Jesus is my life coach. And all of a sudden we can also operate in kingdom confidence because I have great confidence in what Jesus did in my life and in the life of this church yesterday. And I have great confidence in what he's done tomorrow so I can trust him with now and I don't have to worry so much about tomorrow. And I don't have to worry so much about yesterday. I can be here and now and seeing Jesus for who he is and confident that the rain is coming or the rain has come or that God's going to move in somebody's life or God's going to do something. And it's not being presumptuous. There's a difference here. There's, there's a difference here. I'll end on this. Presumptuous is where I say, God, come in and do, bless this thing that I've built. I'm so smart and so great, and I built this thing. You come on in here. Kingdom of living is where we come with empty hands and wade out into what God is doing and say, God, fill my hands because whatever I have isn't enough today. But you're enough today, and you can do this today. And, and so as needy people, because we're needy people and in humility, we say, well, God, what are you doing today? Where can we wade out into what you're doing rather than inviting you just into my thing to make my thing work for me? We wait on to what God's doing with dependence and neediness, and that drives us into prayer and into God's word, into communion with God, and into God's church. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take communion. Lord, our hands are empty, and only you can fill them. Lord, when the ground is dry, only you can bring rain. And we confess to be the friends, the parents, or the spouses, or the missionaries that we want to be. It's way, way, way too big for us. We need you. Please move in our lives. Help us to see what you want us to wade out into, what you are doing, how you're supplying our need and all these things, Jesus. We need you. We're desperate. We need you. We have empty hands, and you're the one who so gladly fills them. Help us to know today in our hearts, Jesus, that we are sons and daughters of God Most High, that we are forgiven, blood-bought, sinner saints, and we did nothing to earn it, and that you, Christ Jesus, have done it all. And may we worship with joy and gladness. Jesus, we love you. You've done it all. We're so thankful. We love you, Jesus. Praise in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.